0: Great, thank you. Um, does this work? Yep. Yeah, okay, great. Um, so first of all, I mean, thank you for inviting me because this is, um, I don't usually do this um, and uh, and I just loved arriving here in, in sort of the hallowed halls of Oxford. And, and so it's a real honor to, to, to speak before all of you and the fellows, um, which I, I read a little bit about uh, about the program. Um, and 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 also, so I do want to talk today about um, how you restore trust in the media at a, at a time when, The importance of separating a fact from rumor and fiction uh, has never been more important, Uh, and this is a time when in many countries around the world the free and fair press is is under threat. Um, And over the past decade, media organizations have faced financial pressures, uh, in addition to political pressures, that have forced many to cut their resources and um, to make changes and to explore shortcuts that essentially shortchange. Uh, readers or or viewers, um, the people who, who we uh, write uh, write for. Um, a lot of what I'm going to be saying draws from from Reuters, but I think it holds true for a lot of uh, media organizations. Certainly for the ones that that I've worked for. So just a quick note on on my on my background. You know, I I worked for Reuters. Uh, in the 1990s, and so I'm back now for my for my second stint. And in between, I worked for um, the Wall Street Journal for nearly 13 years, as Mira said, and working across Europe as a as a reporter and editor. And I always say, you know, at Reuters we obviously have financial journalists and we have war correspondents. Um, and you know, financial journalism is sort of seen as the unglamorous part of the file. But as I tell you know my colleagues. Um, you know, battles in the boardroom can be as brutal as those on the battlefield. A little less bloody, perhaps, usually, but, you know, as as fun to cover, uh, certainly, and as, as as important. I'll talk a little bit about the Reuters model because I think it is relevant, you know, to, to, to what I'm going to say. And so for those of you who may not know, Reuters is a, is a dual model media business. So we sell to financial clients. We're, we're a B2B business, a business-to-business um, Uh, organization mainly. We sell to financial clients and we sell to media clients, so TV networks or digital customers um, or newspapers around the world, including those who who don't have the resources to send their reporters around. I was just saying at lunch we had 20 people in Mosul, which is something that you know not many newspapers certainly, unfortunately, um, uh, can do. And we also have a consumer business through our website um, and our mobile app, um, Reuters TV, Uh, also. So we have a Reuters TV mobile app and then our our app for text. And, you know, so we're unique in the media business in that we serve both. We serve financial clients and media clients. And, you know, but I think that although these are two different audiences, what they actually seek is is not that different. And in fact, every day I run our um, news meeting, our global news meeting. So it's the time, it happens at noon in London, and it's the time when all the different editors get together and talk about the global stories of the day. And we started by looking at what our financial clients are reading and what our dot com readers are reading. And generally, um, you know, generally they're about the same. There actually was, um, I don't know if I can say this, it's not very PC, but there was a, um, there was one exception, which is when um, Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, died, Um, in that case. It was pretty much nowhere to be seen on the website, but it was huge for our financial clients. But that probably says something more about trading rooms than it does about, <laughs> about readers. So, um, <laughs> um, But anyway, journalism today is facing two big challenges, right? Um, there are two overlapping challenges. One is technological and one is societal and, and economic and political. The technological change is, is pushing the boundaries about um, how we and other institutions disclose and propagate news so that social media has shortened the time spans of information. Facebook, Google, and Twitter allow us to publish our stories and propagate them globally, um, reaching increasing audiences at lightning speed. We were talking before about a book that would never have gotten so so much popularity if it hadn't spread through social media. And this has changed consumer tastes so that according to the Reuters Institute and Oxford University survey that I will cite very many times in my presentation. it was a survey of 70,000 people uh, in 36 countries. More than 54% of those people surveyed said they preferred content that is selected by an algorithm, so via social media or an aggregator, compared to 44% who said that they prefer news selected by an editor or journalist, so a website of, of, of a newspaper. Uh, for example. And this is especially true of the younger generation. 64% of under 35-year-olds said they preferred to get their news through social media. This propagation of news, which helps us to propagate our news, also gives institution, the institutions, um, so governments, organizations, companies, new platforms and the ability to disintermediate us, so to go around us and go directly to their readers, to their consumers, and this threatens the business model obviously of traditional media and for advertising based media such as the Wall Street Journal where I worked before I mean suffice it to say that Facebook and Google amass virtually the entire world pie of digital advertising which is where newspapers are going but the second big challenge which which is, to me is an even more important one is the increasing politicization and the polarization of news and in the US and UK for example and and the survey, the the Reuters Institute survey, actually uh, really illuminates this, there's been a rise in openly partisan advocacy news organizations that have been fueled by the polarization of society. I mean, like-minded people cluster together to read news that they want to read and that they like. Um, And partly in response, what has happened is that some of the mainstream media organizations have also shifted their compass, um, and they're taking on a more clearly defined political (coughs) agenda. It's like a world of cultural warriors, if you, if you will. And in this world, mainstream organizations that try for impartiality often come under attack. Um, they're, they're treated um, sometimes with contempt for being unsexy or unfashionable, or even for not being hard hitting enough by not taking sides of, of one of the two uh, missions. Amid these challenges, overall trust in the media, and here we get to the point, um, is dangerously low. Again, according to the Reuters Institute, uh, only 38% of those surveyed said they believed they could trust the news media. A poll by Gallup, a researcher in the U.S., showed that last year Americans' trust in the media had fallen to the lowest levels since 1972. And so the overarching question for our profession is how do we regain global trust? Uh, How can we restore trust among readers, viewers, and society. Um, I believe, I mean, I believe in what we believe at Reuters is that the best way to restore trust and credibility now and in the future is to go back to the future. We were talking about this at lunch. At a time when the media business is facing a barrage of challenges and the advantages of being first are eroding because of social media that allows everybody to go into a story, media organizations, in my opinion, need to focus on the old-fashioned Fact-based reporting that is at the very heart of our journalistic profession. Impartiality, facts, verification of facts, transparency about what we know and what we don't know yet. Good journalism helps make people make, helps people make better decisions, and to make informed decisions, people need facts, synthesis, insight, not opinion. Some people ask me, what's the remedy for fake news? I say well, it's very simple. Don't produce fake news. So, (laughs) um, and I think crucially, this is not just a journalistic imperative, it's a commercial opportunity. So consider this, social media that are grabbing more of the traditional media's market share are starting to learn the limitations of advertised-based models. So Facebook last year came under extreme public pressure and scrutiny in Congress when it confirmed that Russian funds had paid for advertising aimed at influencing the US elections. That being said, there is reason for optimism because at the same time there is some evidence that amid this decade of distrust, if you will, people are yearning for sources of news that they can trust and they're willing to pay for it. So that 64% of of those 35-year-olds who had told the Reuters Institute study that they chose news selected by social media, only 24% actually said that they trusted that social media. So there's a gap there clearly that can be filled. So now I'll get to the, what we do to try, to try to resolve these, so sort of the Reuters rules. And again, you'll forgive me for, for speaking from Reuters, but I do think this holds for other, for other media organizations, but we truly believe in this. So we try to stick to a few simple rules that are in large part governed by our trust principles. The trust principles are a set of rules that we have since 1941, Reuters, and that essentially govern our news gathering. And according to those news principles, we must supply news that is independent, free of bias and reliable. And we are bound by these rules, and I can talk a little bit more about them afterwards. And so we believe that there's no, there's no good news and bad news. There's fair and unbiased news. And so our journalists deliberately refrain from expressing personal takes or political views when they report and when they edit. Not just reporting, editing. And this includes not just producing news where the facts are right, but they've been distorted or twisted to fit an ideological viewpoint. So how do we do that? We have sort of eight rules of the game. One, as I highlighted, we focus ruthlessly on the facts. Two, we verify our facts, even when they come from the horse's mouth. And I have plenty of examples where you might think, even from within Reuters, but the top cheese told you. Three, we present all sides And in order not to take sides, we stick strictly, again, to the facts. We don't practice what I call ambush journalism or gotcha journalism. Um, We believe that seeking fair comment goes to the heart of our credibility. There was, um, we were talking about our uh, head of ethics um, before at lunch, and she, she's a brilliant journalist, and um, she used to always say, she and I used to work at, at the Wall Street Journal together, and she used to say, you know, if you're writing a story that's going to appear the next morning in in the newspaper. You don't want the person you're writing about to choke on their cornflakes. You might want them to choke on their steak the night before when you tell them what's happening, but not on their cornflakes. So no surprises journalism. That's very, very important, we believe, for our credibility. We take ourselves out of the equation because it's not about us. Six, very important, when we make mistakes, and we do, everybody does, we correct them fast and fully. Seven, we resist attempts by governments or anyone to influence us. And eight, we try to differentiate ourselves with insight and with explanation. Now, this all might seem like a platonic ideal. This is what we strive to do every day. Do we succeed every day? Probably not on on all eight of them, but they- Oh yeah, to differentiate ourselves with insight and explanation, to differentiate ourselves. And the concept being that in a world where it is so, easy for everybody to have access to the to the news. Um, you know, it used to be at a time in certain countries where you were the only correspondent, and so you could hold on to something that had happened in, in that country, sort of for the international press. You could you could have it for hours, for days, for even two days. I mean now that no longer that no longer holds. So you really have to strive to differentiate yourself. And we have long experience operating in places where our journalists, and this happens every day to our journalists, encounter censorship, legal prosecution, visa denials, and even physical threats. And we really believe that our neutrality has given us a, a, a record, a track record of credibility, in more than 100 countries where we operate, um, including countries you know, that sometimes the media comes under, under attack, in Turkey, the Philippines, Egypt, Thailand, China, and Russia. Um, I thought I'd give you a few examples, because all of this might seem sort of very, um, kind of, theoretical. Um, so I'll give you examples, and I've chosen two examples, although later, if you like, I can give you many more, of coverage of spot news, and then coverage that we have defined sort of on the investigative side. The spot news that I, that I wanted to use an example is the coup, the attempted coup in Turkey. So about 18 months ago, you all remember, it was a, it was a Friday evening and uh, suddenly Twitter was ablaze with all these reports that military forces had launched a coup against Erdogan. And very quickly social media platforms, they were buzzing, and there were all these unconfirmed rumors that the coup had been successful and that Erdogan was in a plane fleeing the country. In fact, some news reports said that he was flying over Germany trying to land. Um, and it wasn 't just media and Twitter, by the way, because we were speaking to international intelligence agencies and politicians in key capitals that were telling us this, not just us but and others, uh, that basically that Erdogan was finished and fleeing for his life and I think there 's one of the fellows here from Turkey, I think yeah uh, yeah, I mean I think at the time, you know what kind of made this so titillating was that there were so many people inside the country and outside that wanted this to be true, and so you know, maybe th- that, that sort of helped propagate this. But the thing is that our journalists on the ground were seeing a different, different picture. So that one of our photographers um, in Taksim Square witnessed coup soldiers who were kneeling towards uh, or before armed police. And then at the Istanbul airport, there were rebel coup soldiers all around the airport. But inside the airport where we were, there was a different picture. You saw an entirely different picture. Um, And then we also verified by looking at flight data in London that Erdogan's plane was nowhere near Germany. In fact, it was circling over Istanbul, waiting to land. And so, I guess, indisputable facts on the ground that were seen with our own eyes and with our camera lenses told us what the real situation was, and that's exactly what we reported. And I really think that Reuters stood out that night because we steadfastly told the world what was happening in Turkey. You know, in real time, which was that the coup had not worked and that Erdogan was still in power. And you know, it's somebody, often I always get asked, you know, but there's such pressure to be first. You know? Yeah, but it's more important to be right. You know, yes, try to be first, but you have to be right. And if you have to choose between being first and right, always choose right. Um, and so we, we stuck to the facts and we avoided sort of rushing into where others had gone. You know, there is no glory in being fast but wrong, none whatsoever. Um, the second example I wanted to bring is in the business sphere, which is um, more my sphere, of, um, where my background is. And it's, it's an example of, of what we mean by not producing biased news. So last year, we published a number of stories about Monsanto, the agricultural giant. And we published a number of them, but I want to talk about two very briefly because they were published within hours of each other. The first story detailed that a large long-term study into glyphosate, which is a weed killer, in the United States had found that there was no firm link between exposure to the pesticide and cancer. And this, this this story was part of a series of stories that examined how regulators use, and in some cases ignore, scientific research on pesticides. Second story, published within hours, was an in-depth look at the way Monsanto repeatedly ignored warnings by crop scientists about the dangers of releasing a certain seed without an accompanying herbicide. And that led to illegal overspraying of soybean crops. Now, to critics of Monsanto, the second story would have proven the assertions that the company is reckless and dangerous and they should all be put in jail. but those same people might have, in fact, they probably did, well not probably, we know they did, saw the first story as evidence of media bias in favor of big corporations. I mean, we're neither for nor against Monsanto. You know, Our stories were based on evidence, the evidence and where the reporting took us. And the fact that these two stories were published within hours of each other, I think perfectly uh, illuminates that, that idea. And you know, I always believe that, especially in journalism, what Woody Allen said, that. of success is showing up. Uh, This was also true in our Monsanto coverage. Um, There was another part of Monsanto coverage um, where a colleague, a a reporter called Joe Bavier, he wrote a wonderful story about the disaster that ensued when Monsanto tried to export its know-how to cotton farmers in Burkina Faso. And basically, the quality of the country's famous cotton collapsed. Um, When I asked Joe how he got the story, this is what he said. He said... While some people were cagey in the beginning, many were just surprised to see us there on the ground. The agriculture minister and the head of the biggest cotton company spoke with us at length. A diplomat slipped me internal memos between Monsanto and the cotton companies, and I spotted Monsanto's quality results posted on a wall during a simple tour of the quality control laboratory. The moral of Joe's email is clear. Reporting, especially real-world reporting, will set reporters free. Um, now, I've, often I get asked about Trump and how we cover the Trump administration, which you know, whether you observe it from in or out is clearly polarizing the country and polarizing the media too. Um, the answer is the same as above. Put your citizenship aside, which we do around the world, and treat everyone with the same level of fairness. Um, so for example, in the US, we are actually paying particular attention um, to the impact of certain Trump policies we're not just chronicling his daily utterances and tweets. Um, So one of the key policy changes of the US administration is that US agencies have to cut two regulations for every new rule introduced. So we're assessing what that means and the effect of these sorts of changes. We see it as a way to sort of cut through the daily cacophony of the Trump administration and to focus on reporting on things that actually make difference to people, make a difference to people's lives. One last thing I wanted to say is, we were speaking about this at lunch, is that it's very easy to, you know, to say companies should be more transparent, and as journalists, we want to force institutions and governments to be more transparent. Over the past year, we've been thinking a lot about how we can be more transparent, and so to give a little bit more insight into the way we cover news, so we introduced this feature called Backstory that is attached to many of our stories. Um, and there's, there's not a scientific, sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't, there's no, we still haven't figured out, you know, we can't do it for all of them just because we don't have the resources, but we try to do it for the, for the bigger and most important stories. And the idea is to offer transparency about our processes, so I'll just mention a, a couple of them, um, and again, it's a way to disclose more information about how we work. So one of our most recent backstories focused on how we landed an exclusive interview with Prince Al-Walid bin Talal uh, just hours before he was released from involuntary incarceration at, at the Ritz, at the Ritz Hotel in Riyadh. Another explained how our graphics team navigated more than 80,000 rows of data in order to determine whether Britain's impending exit from the European Union will help or hurt the country's fishing industry. Well, our answer was that Britain faces big challenges, and I'm not trying to be political here. And so, among them, um, Brits may find it harder to find. Cod, which of course is, I believe, I'm not British, the beloved ingredient in fish and chips um, on on British menus. Uh, We also used the backstory to showcase some of our most high-impact coverage. So our Zimbabwe backstory illuminated why our journalists on the ground were the first to determine that a procession of military vehicles meant that uh, a coup against President Mugabe was in full swing. Anyway, I hope these examples have given you a sense of um, how we believe that Reuters, can maintain credibility, which we do believe that it does, but also how that we can restore trust in general in in our profession, which is something I care deeply about, um, Reuters cares deeply about, um, because I was saying at lunch, I've only ever done this profession since I was 16 years old, and I really believe it is one of the most noble in the world. So with that, I'm I'm happy to answer any questions at all. Oh.